Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! Political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we explore what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has gotten. I'm Van Jones. Now, I have been doing social change work for a very long time. Almost three decades I've worked on every issue from homelessness, police reform, criminal justice, I mean, you you name it, including climate change and environmental solutions. And I, I gotta tell you, it can grind you down. It can take a lot out of you. It is very difficult sometimes to keep hope and to keep pushing. And there've been a lot of times I've just had to sit down and, and put my head in my hands and, you know, on the road, you know, hotel rooms and conferences and stuff, you're up on stage trying to encourage people, but it's hard to feel encouraged. And one of the things that always brings me back always makes me feel recharged is when I listen to the next generation. And especially on an issue like climate change, the next generation is fighting for its own life. This is not abstract for them. Babies who were born right now are likely to be alive in the next century, in the 22nd century. So all the stuff we're talking about will hit them in their own lifetime. And so the the young climate activists, just, you know, the energy they bring always brings me back and I got lucky one of those times I was feeling low almost 10 years ago I met an activist who at the time was nine years old (laughs) and was the most fired up inspired young speaker I've literally ever seen Uh, he was doing poetry he was doing hip-hop he was speaking these huge conferences and now of course he's not a little kid anymore he's he's a, a grown man 10 years later but his name is Jutescott Martinez. Jutescott has committed his life and did it when he was in single digits to save the earth to save humanity from itself and on top of all of that he's a hip hop artist and last November he dropped his latest project which is called XIXI which means 1111 and he brings a wisdom that is you know far beyond his years. I think I've, as I've kind of grown and seeing kind of just a deep need for for uh, an analysis that, that pulls us away from just this perpetuation of these continued cycles of extraction from the land, from communities. And I think to bring it back to, you know, the climate movement right now is I see spaces like the United Nations and a lot of these, the cops and, and the conferences that, that I was attending for a lot of my life. You know, they wanted an indigenous voice present. They wanted a youth activist voice present. And then really looking at where the brunt of the labor to address where it is that we are going is landing upon it. It has always just been on the shoulders of of frontline and marginalized communities. And I think there's still just a very significant disconnect from these kind of large, high profile conversations around sustainability and equity from a governmental level, from a corporate level, and the folks who are really on the front lines experiencing these impacts. And so as you listen to the conversation I had with him, I want you to just pay attention to a couple of things. First of all, as strong as he is on the issue and as uncompromising as he is, he has found 
common ground with unlikely allies in suburban areas and rural areas. He talks about that. I think we can learn a lot from that. Uh, second, uh, he has a different take on the way to think about the climate crisis. For him, it's not just about the math of you know how many tons of carbon are in the atmosphere, how many oil rigs we have. For him, it's more of a philosophical issue of an extractive mindset. People and corporations are extracting resources from the earth in a way that's bleeding the planet dry. And I think that framework challenges both the left and the right to think very differently. You know, an indigenous perspective, a Native American perspective, which is his, really makes you ask the question, uh, should we just give America back to Native Americans? Uh, they may have a better sense of stewardship than the left or the right does. And I think you should listen to him from that point of view. And lastly, what I love about him, he's not afraid to point out some of the traps, and some of the pitfalls for activists in his own movement, in his own generation that need to be uh, looked at and avoided. And so hearing him talk about some of the flaws and challenges in his own generation's approach, I thought was very sobering and very encouraging. Look, I want you to listen to the voice of a new generation from an indigenous perspective that you don't hear very often. I think he challenges the left and the right in ways I think are very, very helpful. You're going to hear after this break from Juchescott Martinez. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Well, man, it's just, it's great to have you on the show. I, I've literally known you since you were in single digits. You were nine years old when I first met you and you were going around the country. You were pleading and leading and rhyming and doing everything that you could to try to awaken people to this climate controversy and, and just the overall ecological insanity. So I just want to start there. Why 
did you dedicate your life at such a young age? And so powerfully. I mean, a lot of times you were the youngest person in the room by decades when I knew, <laughs> I mean, like, not by like three or four years, by like decades. What was it that made that call arise in you as such a young person? Yeah, bro. Um, thank you for having me. At this point, we've both been doing this for a really long time. And I think just growing up, I was, I was privileged enough to have a really strong connection to my indigenous roots and my, my heritage on my father's side connection to our teachings, our elders, that I think was very foundational in shaping the ideology that I carried with me as I traveled across the country in different parts of the world, speaking at universities and the conferences that we found each other mm -hmm. at. And, um, you know, it was this, this understanding, I think, that I was taught that my people come from a society of people that lived in balance with the land and also had incredible systems of science and mathematics and astronomy and architecture and in really a thriving society and that coexisted with the livability of the land you know it was mm -hmm. it was deeply intertwined not only in a metaphorical sense or a spiritual sense but a very tangible sense and i think we find ourselves navigating this climate crisis and slowly remembering like anything that we grow towards uh, as a society, we're going to have to course correct drastically in order to be able to maintain in balance with the land and with the environment and with the resources and the people and the communities that we have exploited for generations. So I think that that was like foundational in mm -hmm. setting up my kind of journey in the world as a speaker and as a performer and as an activist at an early age was that understanding that, no, we lived a different way back then. And that was disrupted by these the same systems that are now disrupting our ability to breathe clean air, to drink clean water, to see prospects of a healthy, livable future. That the connectivity of the, the conversation around the environment and the climate and the threat to those things felt very parallel to the threat to my people's culture, to the, to the colonialism that erased and stripped us of much of our identity and our being. And I saw those things as kind of very parallel. And as I grow and learn more and tapped deeper into my roots, um, those two things I think are more intrinsically connected. And even looking at the climate movement now too, I think it's more important than ever to be holding those truths very close to one another of um, the work that needs to be done from a climate and a carbon emission standpoint and from a place of looking at the deeper systems of injustice that are at the root of the dysfunction of our society because we didn't always live this way and we don't have to. Yeah, you know, um, I think a lot of people really don't understand the ecological achievement of the indigenous people in North America. I think that what we're taught and told is a bunch of colonizers got here from Europe. Just by some miracle, there's a whole bunch of trees <laughs> you know, big ecological systems. And by the way, when the colonizers got here, a squirrel could climb a tree at the Atlantic Ocean and go branch to branch to branch to the Mississippi River. That's how much ecological wealth and abundance was here. The squirrel would never have to touch the ground. <laughs> and it wasn't here by accident. It was here because the people who lived here were partners with those systems. But most people don't know that. You, yeah. I mean, similarly to the squirrel thing, like you could ride a horse from like the top of the East Coast down to Florida 
because it wasn't just untamed wilderness. They built pathways and roads and it was deeply interconnected. It was deeply communal. It was deeply relational with one another as different communities and tribal groups as well as with the land. And so I think it's, you know, a beautiful way of thinking of all this in in terms of the fight for climate justice too, is not saving the planet or protecting the earth, but really doing the work as relatives of the land to kind of give the land space to heal itself. And it'll take a lot of work from us to help facilitate, I think, a lot of that. Everything from the toxicity of, of our soil to the waters, to our oceans, to the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. But the earth has the tools to, to restore and regenerate itself. And I think that that's not out of just a, a miraculous feat of nature, but it's because of the relationships that we hold with the land that I think is held very closely by indigenous communities historically, but also presently. If you look at the very small population of, of the world's population that are indigenous people protecting over 80% of the world's biodiversity today, in 2021, indigenous folks everywhere from protesting and protecting lands in the Midwest from the Line 3 pipeline that has now been built and has oil flowing through it to indigenous folks in the Amazon defending their territories to, you know, Southeast Asia, indigenous folks in, in many, many different places who are still to this day at the forefront of defending our land, our climate, our waters, because those are our instructions, you know, is to defend this not only for ourselves, because, but because we understand that it is about the greater web of life that we are a part of. You know, a lot of the climate discussion is really just math. And it basically is very reductionistic to how much carbon can we pollute into the atmosphere without destroying human civilization. What I've always loved about your view, and I think, you know, it's in harmony with a lot more of the indigenous view, is that this is um, an ecological community of trees and oceans and soil and all kind of stuff that can absorb and sequester carbon and has done so. That's why you have oil under the ground in the first place is that Mother Earth is very good at sequestering carbon. (laughs) The reason you have all this stuff that you can dig out of the ground and burn (laughs) is because it turns out there is a whole living system, you know, this whole Earth system that's really, really good. at getting carbon out of the atmosphere and sticking it under the ground if you will let the system live. But you can't simultaneously bulldoze, pave, chop down all these living systems, which are supposed to be grabbing the carbon and putting it away, and then also dig up all the carbon and burn it (laughs) and think that you're going to be okay. But people tend to look at the carbon burning side. They don't look at the living system side of the carbon capture. But I think there's something about the way you talk and there's something about the perspective that you hold and that you're, that just feels very good. I think you hit a wavelength or a vibration that brings people back to their best selves. And I just want to point out, I really do think that this is the time for the indigenous perspective to come forward. Because I think it can be a unifying perspective. I think that, you know, red state farmers and ranchers, those voices are not being heard. The people who are close to the land are not being heard. But I think that the things you're saying might even be appealing to them. Yeah. And I think and I think I learned that a lot, too, in the anti-fracking struggle in Colorado, where I grew up, where I would go to a lot of these protests and meetings. And you would see all kinds of folks across the political spectrum who would join together to talk about the impacts of the natural gas extractive industry in Colorado, because you would see these, you know, upper middle class, wealthier communities out in the middle of 
kind of rural suburban Colorado where they're building well pads right next to their schools, right next to their children. And obviously there was a disproportionate impact that affected black and brown communities where they would be more likely to place these well pads and these drill sites next to predominantly brown communities and schools. But still you would see white families and white children be impacted by everything from the health effects to the access, you know, the lack of access to clean water all of a sudden in these communities. And it brought people together around this idea of, of water. You start to see in these spaces that we have more in common than we do separately. And I think when I see a lot of the indigenous organizing and the folks that are at the forefront, it's like they're out there for all of us, bro. Like they're not just doing this for for ourselves or just for our culture or just so that this one nation can have a, a prosperous access to their land and to their waters. Like what do you think happens when the Dakota Access Pipeline spills and it gets into the Missouri River and it, and it affects everything downstream. Every person who draws from that river to feed their crops, to feed their communities. This is so interconnected. And I, and I agree. I mean, I think that the years to come, we will see a greater understanding from the collective that there needs to be an emphasis on indigenous leadership at the forefront. And we have seen for, for a long time where indigenous people have been standing up, period. Similarly to how black and brown inner city communities have been standing up against environmental racism, gentrification, redlining, many of these issues that go hand in hand with environmental devastation for generations, not because we want to be the next climate celebrity or anything. It's because this is our home, you know, and we feel it first. I think a, a space and a conversation that is very much developing and has been developing over the last little bit is this idea of, of land back. And what does it mean? What does it mean? Land back? What does that mean? Land back. It, first of all, it literally is a call for the return of lands to indigenous stewardship. And it is also, I think I've, I've heard a lot of people really beautifully talk about how when we say land back, we also mean the return of everything that has been taken from us and the ability to stake our claim to be here and exist on these lands and freely return to and reconnect to our language, our culture, our ceremony. And the space that I see it bringing people together is, is seeing a lot of white folks either that have land or that have access to funds and wealth are beginning to kind of jump on this train of both physically, literally returning land to indigenous folks and understanding and having this internal conversation of understanding that the return of lands to indigenous people is part of what will allow all of us to live more freely. And, and it's something that I think is really intrinsically challenges the groundwork that has been laid to, to have us buy really deeply into capitalism, this idea of property ownership of land. And so I think seeing that conversation evolve, we are beginning to challenge this idea of land ownership and say, if we want to address the climate crisis, if we want to begin to do the work that is necessary to kind of heal the land and heal our relationship with the land. And part of that step looks like returning lands to indigenous people to have them stored and, and guide us in the direction so that when pipeline projects like Line 3 or the Dakota Access Pipeline, part of that needs to be a reimagination of our value so that consent from indigenous people is at the forefront of any development that happens in indigenous nations and communities, which is just not happening. It's just, it's just not happening. Well, look, that's a very exciting concept. I hadn't heard about it. But, you know, it was about land and labor. I mean, that's basically what the whole colonial project was about. Stealing land and stealing labor, indigenous genocide and African enslavement. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned that something like land back, which you would assume would be a radical, scary concept, you know, for quote unquote, 
the white man, you know, <laughs> actually in reality, there are people of real means, people who, who have inherited money, who have inherited positions, whose hearts have been opened and they want to do something. And I think that sometimes we get in these little corners, these sound bites, and we don't recognize that there are people who look just like us who would be opposed to this agenda. <laughs> and there are people who look very different who might be supportive. So when we come forward with these beautiful ideas, I think we should be more open-minded and open-hearted about who might take part and who might be an ally, co-conspirator, supporter. That said, you know, your generation is really up against the wall. You know, if somebody is in kindergarten right now, they may very well live to be alive in the 22nd century. And all of these things that we're talking about are coming down in the next couple of decades. So this is real life stuff. Talk a little bit about your generational perspective. How frustrated are you with the older generation? How patient, how impatient? Let, let's just get into that. Yeah, I mean, I just don't feel very hopeful about the older generation of folks who are in power right now, who have, despite the growing urgency, demonstrated cowardice and unwillingness to meet the moment that we are in right now. That view was really solidified when I witnessed kind of the, the Democratic establishment coalesce around Joe Biden before the primaries were over. I mean, when Bernie was still in the race and I, you know, I was a surrogate for Bernie. And so I think, you know, when I, when I witnessed kind of him get knocked out of the race and this fear of the possibility and I think the vision that I, that I, that I witnessed Bernie hold and, and not just him, but the movement around him and the people and, and the way that the people really kind of coalesced around these ideas. So yeah, solidified this belief, you know, that things are in a really bad place with the, the people in power right now. And even as, as a Biden administration has made massive promises throughout the campaign and now watching the, the lack of courage as well and executing a lot of that is, is very disheartening. And being very complicit, I think, with so much of the continued injustice that we see, the violence against water protectors in Minnesota at the Line 3 pipeline protests. You know, so you, you see people's true colors. We hope for the best, but I think my hope lies much more in, in the hands of, of the people. And, and I don't even, even actually mean other climate activists at this point either, but more so just on the folks really on the grounds doing this stuff. Because I feel like we've also gotten to the point looking at my generation and the younger kids that are coming up too, where I think the climate space is really confusing as well. I think post Greta becoming this, this, this celebrity for the very good things that she has had to say and, and contributed to the space, there is a, a really interesting dynamic at play where I think there is uh, this kind of clout culture around young organizers and, and young people and, 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 you know, looking back at the many years of my life and the work that I've done and, and, and kind of coming to terms with how I've contributed to this idea of climate celebrity as an inherent positive truth that we need in the world right now. When in reality, establishments and governments and the, the change that we want to see happen in, in the world is, is not going to come from celebrities and is not going to come from people growing upwardsly in their personal platform. So I think I've become a bit, a bit disillusioned with those dynamics within the climate space over the last few years and have looked more and more to the front lines to find where I'm excited to see us going. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. 
Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately. You know, it's, it's funny, like, you know, the, the wheel just goes round and round. When I was about your age, a little bit older, not much older, Bill Clinton was running for president. I really was excited about Bill Clinton. And then that summer in 92... We had the Rodney King Rebellion in Los Angeles where mm -hmm. four white police officers got acquitted for beating the crap out of a guy, an African-American man named Rodney King on video. And the jury let, let the cops go. And it just felt like to us it was open season on black community from the police. And then Bill Clinton goes to Reverend Jesse Jackson's uh, conference. Jesse Jackson, a big, big civil rights leader. And Bill Clinton attacks a woman named Sister Soldier. Now, ironically, I actually had met a sister soldier. Her name is Lisa Williamson, and she was somebody I looked up to. But here you have Bill Clinton saying that sister soldier was promoting violence and she's promoting hatred and she shouldn't have been allowed at the conference and kind of you know, humiliates Jesse Jackson. But the, the real problem is Lisa Williamson, sister soldier, had actually been doing the opposite. Uh, she was one of the biggest peacekeepers uh, in the black community. And all she had said on air was, you know, everybody's mad that these black kids hurt this one white truck driver. That's terrible. But you got to understand, you got black kids killing black kids every single day and nobody cares. And so in their mind, if it's OK for black kids to kill black kids, of course, they're going to think, why not hurt a white guy? Why not kill a white guy, given what's going on in the hood every day? Now, Bill Clinton took that and said she was calling for black people to kill white people. And he destroyed her career. And he was wrong for doing that. And you had a whole generation of young African-Americans who knew that. So we spent the 90s you know, fighting the Clintons, fighting mass incarceration, fighting all the prisons and the cops that that you know, whole era uh, produced. And as a result, you know, I stayed outside of the system a long time. You know, I was in my late 40s before I wound up working in the White House and all the things. And I don't think people understand when you let down young people, the long ripple effects of that. And when you do these political hijinks that, you know, young people are watching and, you know, it teaches them, you know, sometimes tough lessons. I want to push back on one thing that you said, though, about what you, you call it climate celebrity. And I want to have a better understanding of what you see as the, the pros and the cons, because on the one hand, if somebody is in the struggle for the wrong reason or they're, or they're just getting attention and they're not really a part of anything and they're just getting book deals or they're just doing whatever they want to do, that can be very destructive. 
at the same time, we do have a tradition among progressives of just eating our own. And the minute that somebody shows any promise, we like them for one second and then we just basically get jealous and tear them down like crabs in a barrel. Look, some people have a gift for communication. You certainly do. Greta does. I do. That's a part of what the struggle requires. Is we, we have to educate. We have to decolonize humanity after 500 years of colonization. Education requires teachers. Teachers have to talk. If you do it well, you might get famous. How do you balance the need? Maybe I'm old fashioned, but I'm so glad we had Malcolm X. I'm so glad we had Dr. King. I'm so glad we had those voices. I'm so glad we had Ella Jo Baker. I'm so glad we had James Baldwin. I'm so glad we had these voices that in the black community were able to teach us and frankly teach our allies and our opponents, you know, where we're coming from. Is that always bad? How can it be good? Do we just have to get away from that model altogether? Just talk to me about how you see it. Yeah, for sure. I think it's 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 complicated and it's it's um I think more more than a critique on on individuals or individuals attaining a certain level of platform. It's a disillusionment with the state of how we kind of collectively understand the climate movement right now. And I think I see it kind of parallel to these these conferences whether it's Ted bringing the CEO of Shell to come and speak on a climate panel. Or it's people like Elon Musk and these other billionaires who, who have these very colonial visions of continuing the uh, long tradition of extraction and depletion of resources, but doing it in a way that technologically digs us out of this mess to a certain degree to benefit a certain amount of people while allowing us to continue our extractive relationship with the land. So, so you mean like, uh, you know, smart batteries and that kind of stuff for electric cars, you still have to have cobalt. You still got to be mm-hmm. mining. You still got to be pulling stuff. Maybe maybe you're pulling, you know, rare earth minerals mm-hmm. out of instead of oil and coal, but it's still extractive. Yeah, it's still extractive. And I think it doesn't challenge the ways in which these extractive industries are are harmful inherently. And I think it doesn't challenge the, the systems of power that have put energy corporations and billionaires as the main beneficiaries of everything from renewable to fossil fuel industries. And it doesn't look at, you know, I think, I think I've, as I've kind of grown and seeing kind of just a deep need for, for uh, an analysis that, that pulls us away from, Mm -hmm. from just this perpetuation of these continued cycles of extraction from the land, from communities. And I think to bring it back to, you know, the climate movement right now is I see Spaces like the United Nations and a lot of these, the cops and, and the conferences that, that I was attending for a lot of my life, you know, they wanted an indigenous voice present. They wanted a youth activist voice present. And then really looking at where the brunt of the labor to address where it is that we are going is landing upon it. It has always just been on the shoulders of, of frontline and marginalized communities. And I think there's still just a very significant disconnect from these kind of large, high-profile conversations around sustainability and equity from a governmental level, from a corporate level, and the folks who are really on the front lines experiencing these impacts. And I think that that oftentimes the celebrities are, these voices for our generation are so crucial. I believe very deeply in the need for young people's voices to be heard and to be elevated. But I think that oftentimes those voices, not at the fault of the youth themselves, but as a result of how we treat this issue, 
have been co-opted by large corporations and by big green nonprofits to say, all we need to do is praise these individuals for their platform and for their voice. And it keeps us kind of fixated on the optics of what it's going to take to build a better world is to listen to these speeches and to hear these people speak when it's it's not as holistic as full or as full circle as I feel like we need to be striving for and, and tangible, you know, and I think that oftentimes um, young people unfortunately get mixed up in that. And, and I f- for sure know that I for especially the tail end of, you know, when I was doing a lot of this stuff really became kind of a manifestation as well of my own platform, kind of just being pushed and pulled and being used to prop up different brands and being used to prop up different agendas, which at the end of the day, we're not that transformative. We're not that in service to community. And that's what I think I'd like to push back against a little bit, having been there myself. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think it's very challenging to get attention and use it properly and to get the spotlight and then swing it where it really belongs, as you're suggesting you want to pass the spotlight closer to the front lines. I think that's really good. And I think that, um, I think it's a useful pushback. You know, I think about the, the journey ahead um, for you. You got to do a lot of stuff that doesn't go together easily. You've got to bring people together. And yet you've got to take a, a pretty uncompromising stand for what the outcome's got to be, which is, you know, land back and real serious restoration of ancient wisdom, traditions, and respect for people whose treaties have been violated a thousand times. Those two things pull in different directions. When you're trying to bring a lot of people together, you tend to water the message down, not you personally, but there's a tendency to want to water it down to make it palatable for everybody. At the same time, when you go for a very strong point of view, you can sometimes get isolated and you become like this one screaming voice with no base and no influence. The uncommon ground community are people very much like yourself who, you know, want to bring people together for good. But those two things are hard to put together. How, as we move to a to conclusion, how much compromise do you think has to be present to do what you want to do versus how much can you just not compromise? Yeah. Help me understand how you think about that. Yeah, it's been a really important kind of process that I've been reflecting on recently. And I feel like through the work that I've done with, um, with, with community and, and with brands as well has really helped me understand this spectrum of me leveraging the platform of these different corporations and brands to say what I need to say and to put a spotlight and elevate the people that I know that, that need their stories elevated without compromising in, in how I move and how I do it and who I, at the end of the day, am accountable to. And I think it's, for me, you know, that grounding in why it is that I'm doing this and what I'm doing it for, I think is really, really important for any one of us doing this kind of work. Cause you know, I think I got lost in that for a lot of years, being very young and just being, you know, very impressionable and excited and in a lot of spaces with a lot of intelligent people pulling in a lot of directions. But at the end of the day, I was like, the things that I really can't compromise on are my responsibility to my community and my responsibility to both my ancestors and, and our descendants. And I think that looks different for each person. And I think one way that I strive to kind of find this balance in having my message be as true and as poignant and as uh, some may say radical as, as I believe it to be while reaching the most people that I feel need to be reached with these stories is I feel like I've, I've been able to put that in my art 
and put that in my music and have the art be a, a doorway, an entry point. Because I think part of the uh, misconception too is radical ideology or beliefs that are hard for people to grasp have to, if you're going to hold that, then you have the expectation that everybody you speak to about that must digest it and understand it and either agree or disagree with it off bat. When in reality, I think what music does, and as an artist, what I found is like, this can be the portal that invites people into these conversations, not into convincing them to believe what I believe, but exactly what you're doing with the show and saying, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why we agree and disagree around land back or around reparations. And I just found my art is where I, I love to do that more than anything in the world is make art, make music, perform, tour, record. This new album for me is a is a way that can invite people into these stories and the communities that I am from to help share these stories and share these messages and hold that wisdom in a way that is not about every song preaching to some political issue that I want you to like be bought in on, but it's a reflection of my soul and of my understanding of the world. And I think that's the most purest way that I can just offer it because everybody's going to take it and make meaning of their own. And you, and once you put the art out into the world, you don't actually have control over it. And that's part of the beauty of it as well. So I feel like the art will be that bridge for me as I continue to develop the way I see the world. Yeah. Well, um, I'd love to hear a little bit of flow from you. First time I ever saw you, you were doing your art and that might be a good way for us to close. Give me the, the name of the album, if the album has a name and how people can get the album and then let's hear a little bit from you. 1111XIXI, it is a, uh, a culmination of the last three or four years of creative development and growth between myself and my best friend and producer, Jaya Surf from Australia. And uh, very excited to share it with the world and to, to leave off with a little verse from the project. Brush my shoulders off, ashes from the sky. I've seen a lot of things burn in my time. Kingdoms rise and fall on our backs. While COVID and the fires burn, all people work the land. And I've known for a while that the time is near. The pressure accumulating, every act of resistance, a drop falling from the sky. The waters is high, cracks in the foundation, the dam breaking. A force to be recognized because we done waiting. More than the legacy of field workers and land taking More than the poverty, ghettos, barrios, reservations More than the flag and they fake freedom, these fools hanging We are the love that they couldn't kill Our people's survival story, the schools is afraid to tell Flowers in the desert that reach for the sun still Until the sun shines on us a new day Young man, young man, hope to have you back very, very soon Let's get it, bro, appreciate you, thank you always we see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. I've always admired Shutescott so much. You know, when, when you watch somebody go from literally being a, a kid, like literally a child, to being you know such a beautiful, powerful, strong adult, it just gives me a lot of hope. It really does. And what I most love about him, he's not approaching this issue as like a left versus right, Republican versus Democrat issue. He's centering his activism on Mother Earth and indigenous voices. You know, his focus is on the land, it's on living systems, 
At the end of the day, when it comes to this whole climate change conversation, that's really what it's all about. It's about the land. And to me, the climate change conversation is where we should be able to find the most common ground because we're literally standing on it. So if you want to be involved in the fight for climate justice, one thing you can do is to support one of the organizations that Shutescott got started. It's called EarthGuardians.org. You can go and join, back them up, give them some money, uh, give them some love. That's it for this week's episode of Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. See you next week. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven, a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she is willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Reyes Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.